Lesson 11 for December 7 through 13, Backslidden People, read by Dr. Percy Harold. Sabbath afternoon, December 7. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for your word and what it teaches us, what it shows us about you and about your love and your compassion and your grace, and also about the salvation that you offer, and also about the hope we have for the future. And this week, as we look at what happened to people who were backslidden and how your grace is so magnanimous, we pray that your Spirit will guide us and bless us. May your Word jump out at us and show us what you are really like. And may we come to walk with you day by day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 22. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Let's read that again, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 22. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In the interim between chapters 12 and 13, Nehemiah returns to Babylon. Though we don't know how long he was gone, when he returned, probably 430 to 425 BC, the people were backsliding. Though they had covenanted with God on these matters, first, not to intermarry with idolaters, second, to observe the Sabbath carefully, and third, to take care of the temple and its personnel by tithes and offerings, and we read about that in Nehemiah chapter 10, they had violated all three of these promises. By the time Nehemiah returned, he found them very lax in their devotion to God. The people had stopped returning tithes and offerings, begun using temple rooms for other purposes, ceased keeping the Sabbath properly, and even returned to intermarriage with the nations around them. Worst of all, it was the leadership whom he had left behind that contributed to the decline in the Israelites' relationship with God. It is not surprising that Nehemiah was devastated when he discovered how much had changed. However, Instead of accepting it, once again, as his character demanded, he acted for God's glory. Sunday, December 8. Tainted Temple Leadership Nehemiah 13 begins with a concern about Ammonite and Moabite foreigners or idolaters in their midst, as we read in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that 
no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was, when they had heard the law, that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. These verses do not speak about driving away individuals from a different nation or race who followed God, but rather they refer to sending away those who were of a different faith, not converts but idolaters, as we read in Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 to 6. So we begin at verse 3. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God will not listen to Balaam. But... The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Question, read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Who were Eliashib and Tobiah? Why is what they did unacceptable? Nehemiah 13, we'll begin at verse 1 again. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law, that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied to Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a large room, where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then, after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing the room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. And I brought back into them the articles of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. It also tells us to look at several other verses, like Nehemiah 2 verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And verse 19 of chapter 2 of Nehemiah. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? 
and Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananelal. And then chapter 12, verse 10. Jeshua begat Joachim. Joachim begat Eliashib. Eliashib begat Joiada. And Nehemiah 12, verse 22, During the reign of Darius the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been heads of their fathers' houses in the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua. And the same chapter, no, the next chapter, Nehemiah 13, verse 28. And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Both Eliashib and Tobiah are known figures in the book of Nehemiah. Eliashib was the high priest of the nation, and he also was in charge of the temple. Tobiah is mentioned as the Ammonite enemy of Nehemiah, who vehemently opposed his work in Jerusalem. The alliance of Eliashib and Tobiah suggests a relationship established through marriage. Even though records of the marriage connection have not been preserved, we know that Tobiah had a Jewish name, meaning, the Lord is good, and thus most likely came from a Jewish background. His wife's family, the descendants of Ara, though unidentified, are believed to have been related to Eliashib's family. Additionally, Sanballat the Horonite, Nehemiah's other opponent, had a daughter who was married to Eliashib's grandson. Therefore, the circle of intrigue around Nehemiah must have been intense, as the highest-ranked officials in the land were related and in an alliance against Nehemiah's leadership. During the governor's absence, the high priest gave Tobiah one of the rooms in the temple that was designated to hold the tithe, gifts and offerings. Tobiah was granted permanent residence in the temple, a way of establishing him as one of the leaders of the nation. The enemies of Nehemiah finally achieved what they wanted all along, to displace Nehemiah and be in charge themselves. Fortunately, Nehemiah wasn't going to sit by and do nothing. So to finish today, why do God's people all through sacred history, whether the Jews in ancient Israel or the Christians who followed them during and after New Testament times, so easily allow themselves to be led astray? How can we avoid their mistakes? Monday, December 9. The Levites in the Fields. Question. Read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 10 through 14. What is Nehemiah seeking to remedy here? Nehemiah 13, beginning at verse 10. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, 
Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites Padiah, and next to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. The singers, gatekeepers, and other temple servants had to go back to working in their own fields in order to feed their families, because the work for God had not been supported. The whole tithes and offering system that was so painstakingly established now lay in ruins. Nehemiah had to start over. The act of throwing everything out of the room shows desperation. As we read in Prophets and Kings, page 670, not only had the temple been profaned, but the offerings had been misapplied. This had tended to discourage the liberalities of the people. They had lost their zeal and fervour and were reluctant to pay their tithes. The treasuries of the Lord's house were poorly supplied. Many of the singers and others employed in the temple service, not receiving sufficient support, had left the work of God to labour elsewhere. End of quote. It is fascinating to see that all of Judah came together again and rebuilt what had been destroyed. The people were on Nehemiah's side against Tobiah and Eliashib, because they must have realised that Nehemiah did everything he could for the benefit of the people. Additionally, Nehemiah entrusted the temple grounds, overseers, positions to men whom he considered faithful and trustworthy. They were given the task of collecting tithes and offerings, making sure the goods were stored properly, and distributing the resources of, to the appropriate parties. In other words, Nehemiah came in and uprooted the corrupt system of leadership seemingly in one fell swoop. Although Nehemiah appointed faithful men over the organisation of the temple, the corrupt high priest Eliashib did not lose his position because it was handed down through Aaron's descent. His work in the temple might have been crippled by Nehemiah's measures of appointing others over some of the high priest's responsibilities, but he was still the high priest. So to finish the day, Nehemiah had prayed in Nehemiah 13.14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. What was so human about that prayer? Tuesday, December 10, Tithes and Offerings Nehemiah's reforms of the temple services included the implementation of tithes and offerings. 
question, read Numbers 18, 21-24, Malachi 3.10, Matthew 23.23, 1 Corinthians 9, 7-14, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, and Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. What do these texts teach us about the importance of tithes and offerings, not just in the temple service, but for today as well? Let's begin at Numbers chapter 18 and verse 21. Behold, I have given the children of Israel all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them, Among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. And Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. First Corinthians 9 Verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or... Does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who ploughs should plough in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And Second Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let everyone give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. 
For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without the collection of tithes and offerings, the temple could not function. When tithing stopped, the services in the temple fell apart, and the whole worship system was in jeopardy. As temple personnel went to look for other jobs to feed their families, they couldn't focus on taking care of the temple. Consequently, the worship of God diminished, as we read in Seventh-day Adventist Believe, published in 2005 and page 304. The tithing system is beautiful in its simplicity. Its equity is revealed in its proportional claim on the rich and on the poor. In proportion, as God has given us the use of his property, so we are to return to him a tithe. When God calls for the tithe in Malachi 3.10, he makes no appeal to gratitude or generosity. Although gratitude should be a part of all our expressions to God, we tithe because God has commanded it. The tithe belongs to the Lord, and he requests that we return it to him. End of quote. Just as happened with the Israelite temple, our church would fall apart without the support of the members' tithes and offerings. Our church services would not function without people who are paid to put time into quality ministry, planning and management of the church for God. Worship of God also would be diminished in quality. Most important, though, without tithes and offerings, evangelism would be non-existent. Moreover, we give tithes because God established the system in His Word. There are times God doesn't have to explain why He set something up. He expects us to trust that He is in control. We should find out and be informed on how the system works, but then entrust it into His hands. So, to finish today, why is tithing so important for our own spirituality and as a measure of our own trust in God? Wednesday, December 11. Treading the winepresses on Sabbath? Question. Read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. What is the issue that Nehemiah addresses here? Nehemiah 13, beginning at verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading winepresses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. It is not easy to stand up for God when you are in the minority, because God said that the Sabbath was to be a holy day on which no one was to do any work, Nehemiah intended to make sure that this command was followed in Jerusalem. 
No doubt, he felt a moral obligation to take the position he did and then act upon it. The Sabbath was created as the pinnacle of creation week because it was a special day on which people were to be renewed and recreated by spending time with God in ways that they can't when engaged in other occupations or other worldly pursuits. It has been said that, More than Israel kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept Israel. The point is, that the Seventh-day Sabbath was and remains a powerful means of helping keep faith alive in those who, by God's grace, seek to observe it and enjoy the physical and spiritual benefits it offers us. Question. Read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. What does Nehemiah do in order to stop the buying and selling on the Sabbath? Nehemiah 13, beginning at verse 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do, by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was, at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut, and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates, so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy." Because Nehemiah is the governor of Judah, he sees his role as the enforcer of the rules. Because the rules in Judah were based on the law of God, he becomes a guardian of that law, including the Sabbath. Maybe, if the nobles of Judah had stood up to the corruption brought in by the high priest, Nehemiah wouldn't have found himself in this situation. However, the rulers and nobles perhaps already resented Nehemiah for making them give back to the poor earlier. Thus, they didn't seem to object to the changes Eliashib and Tobiah brought in either. Nehemiah rebukes the nobles first and then commands that the gates be shut and posts servants at the gates to guard them. When the marketplace simply moves from inside the city to the outside, he takes even more drastic measures and threatens to lay a hand on the merchants the next Sabbath. Nehemiah must have been a man of his word because the merchants got the point and stayed away from then on. Thursday, December 12. Did not your fathers do thus? Nehemiah's zeal for the Sabbath day is admirable. 
Nehemiah was so passionate about observing the Sabbath correctly that he even promised to lay hands on the merchants from other nations. In other words, he would have personally intervened if he had caught them in the city or by the gates on the Sabbath again. As a governor, he had official responsibilities to make sure that this commandment was kept properly. As we read in Prophets and Kings, page 671 and 672, Nehemiah fearlessly rebuked them for their neglect of duty. What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day, he sternly demanded. Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon the city, yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath? He then gave command that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, they should be shut, and not opened again till the Sabbath was past. And having more confidence in his own servants than in those that the magistrates of Jerusalem might appoint, he stationed them at the gates to see that his orders were enforced. End of quote. Nehemiah's warning about Sabbath desecration, along with other warnings about violating it, had apparently echoed down through the ages, even to Jesus' time. We know this because the Gospels time and again portray Jesus as struggling with the religious leaders over proper Sabbath-keeping. Question. Read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, Mark 3, 1 to 6, Luke 6, 6 to 11, and John 5, verses 5 to 16. What was the issue here, and how does an understanding of ancient Israel's history help explain why the controversy arose? First of all, Matthew 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple." But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And Mark 3, beginning at verse 1, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal the man on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, 
whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts, and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And John 5, beginning at verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who he was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. In their zeal, however misguided, to make sure that the Sabbath was not desecrated, these religious leaders were so fanatical that they accused Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, as we read in Luke 6.5, of violating it. Talk about taking a good thing too far? The irony is that while many of these men expressed great concern about the law, they forgot the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, as we read in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. And so to finish today, how can we, as individuals and as a church, be careful not to make the same kind of mistake that these men did, whether with the Sabbath or with something else that we believe is important to the faith. Friday, December 13 From the book Prophets and Kings, page 673 and 674, as he set before them God's commands and threatenings and the fearful judgments visited on Israel in the past for this very sin, their consciences were aroused and a work of reformation was begun that turned away God's threatened anger and brought his approval and blessing. There were some in sacred office who pleaded for their heathen wives, declaring that they could not bring themselves to separate from them. But no distinction was made, 
No respect was shown for rank or position. Whoever among the priests or rulers refused to sever his connection with idolaters was immediately separated from the service of the Lord. A grandson of the high priest, having married a daughter of the notorious Sanballat, was not only removed from office, but promptly banished from Israel. Remember them, O my God, Nehemiah prayed, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Read the Ellen White quote above. In class, talk about what you think about what Nehemiah did, not making any exceptions, even for those who truly seemed to love their wives and did not want to separate from them. Do you think Nehemiah was too strong, too unyielding, and could have made some exceptions? Why? Or why not? In this same context, how does the church exercise discipline in love and understanding and at the same time be consistent and not diminish God's standards of truth. 2. Though we know that there is nothing legalistic about keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, just as there is nothing legalistic about not coveting, stealing, or lying, how can we be careful not to make Sabbath-keeping, or obedience to any commandment, into something that becomes legalistic? Why is keeping the cross and what Christ has done for us on the cross always before us the most powerful protection against the trap of legalism? 3. At the same time, how can we protect ourselves against the dangers that come from slow but steady compromise, such as what Nehemiah confronted? Inside Story Our mission story this week, once again, is by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. It's titled, Secret to Happy Home. Home was not a happy place for Hazel Moyo. Her father drank, and her parents argued frequently in Gwanda, a small town in Zimbabwe. Hazel longed to have a happy family. At the age of 14, Hazel made a decision that triggered a chain of events that would change her home forever. She started going to church. She saw other children heading to Sunday services, and she wanted to go too. So, she took her nine-year-old brother by the hand and went. After high school, Hazel saw a newspaper advertisement for Seleucia University, a Seventh-day Adventist institution located about two and a half hours by bus from her home. She met university recruiters when they visited her town, and her father agreed to pay for her tuition. At Seleucy, Hazel soon joined a singing group and asked them many questions about the Sabbath. One of the group's members, a young married pastor named Elliot Nyataga, announced, I want this girl to be my daughter, he said. Every Wednesday I will pray and fast for her to know God. Five other group members liked the idea and, together with Hazel, joined in. For three months they prayed and fasted. Then Seleucia University held a week of prayer and Hazel was baptised. When Hazel turned 23, Elliot 
presented her with Ellen White's book, Messages to Young People. Hazel was touched by the advice for happy families. She wanted a happy family. I learned how you approach an angry parent, how you address some of the issues that you have with parents, and how to show honour to your parents, she said. A favourite passage on page 331 says, There are many children who profess to know the truth, who do not render to their parents the honour and affection that are due to them, who manifest but little love to father and mother, and fail to honour them in deferring to their wishes or in seeking to relieve them of anxiety. Joy began to fill Hazel's home as she followed the book's advice. Then, during a school break, Hazel invited her parents to read the Bible and pray before going to bed. They agreed. The next morning, Mother asked Hazel to read the Bible and pray again. Soon the family began having evening and morning worship every day. Happiness now permeates the home, and Hazel is praying for her family to be baptised. Now we are a happy family, the kind of family that I always wanted, said Hazel, whose picture appears on the left here. Part of the 2015-13 Sabbath offering went to Seleucia University to double the size of its cafeteria from 500 seats to 1,000. Thank you for your mission offerings that allow Adventist schools like Seleucia to work with the Holy Spirit to change families for eternity. I always enjoy reading this story that comes at the end of the lesson each week because it shows how God's Spirit is working all around the world. Some of you may remember that um, last quarter I recorded one of the lessons at a camp meeting and there were thousands of rainbow lorikeets in the trees making an awful din. It made it difficult for me to record. Well, just recently I put up on my Facebook page uh, some photographs of these most beautiful birds that cover most of Australia. You may want to check it out. Just search for me on Facebook at Percy Harold, that's P-E-R-C-Y, Harold, H-A-R-R-O-L-D, and enjoy the beautiful things that God creates. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. It is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department, and through the services of Christian Services for the Blind. A video of this podcast also occurs on YouTube. Remember, God is always faithful.